Our Father in heaven, I ask that you'll bless the time that we spend here studying your holy book of Revelation, that you'd make it clear enough to us what it means and what it says. And I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yesterday we were studying the second angel's message. Today we're going to spend some time looking at the third angel's message and then move on from there. Revelation chapter 14, we're looking at verse 9. And, there, and the third angel followed them, saying, with a loud voice. Is it clear that these three angels are consecutive instead of contemporary? That there is an order to them? Follow them, saying, with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast and his image, and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. What did they drink in verse 8? That's it. The wine of the wrath of Babylonian fornication. In other words, Babylon is enforcing its mark, and they're enforcing it with their fornication, their union of church and state, that false doctrine, and there's a wine of wrath there. But if you don't drink... I mean, if you... If you find a way to escape drinking their wrath or experiencing their wrath, what wine are you going to drink? That's it, the wrath of God. Everyone is going to experience wrath in the second and third hill's message. Either the wrath of the beast or the wrath of the lamb. The same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of his indignation. Mixture. Um, we talked about it being unmixed with mercy. How do we get that unmixed with mercy? It's just a matter of logic. That is, pure wrath. If there was anything mixed in, it would be the opposite of wrath. But pure wrath would be unmixed with mercy. I'm saying it's just by reason that we get there. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. This reminds us of the judgment scene because Jesus offered to confess the faithful before the angels. What happens to the faithless? They suffer before the angels. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone. What's another word for brimstone? That's it, sulfur. Tormented with fire and with sulfur like what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 16, And the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever. I want to address that, verse 16, excuse me, verse 11, sorry. I want to address that verse 11 for a bit. The smoke ascendeth forever and ever. The literal reading of of the words here are to ages and ages. But typically in the Bible, in the New Testament, when you see the word forever, 
it means to some indefinite period, for ages. But when it's used like this, forever and ever, it often is used to be referring to eternity. It often is. Ages and ages. There is one passage besides this one where it looks like it refers to or could refer to a wicked person. Other than that, it's always God's people and God and God's ways that are forever and ever. But does this passage speak about anyone living forever and ever being wicked? No. No. What is smoke? It's the remnant of what has happened in the fire. Is smoke in the fire? It is for a while, but it's not there for long. The smoke goes up. In fact, if you put the fire out, you often still have smoke going up. If smoke goes up forever and ever in a literal sense, eventually it's going to rise to the top of the atmosphere and then going up becomes kind of a weird word. Which way is up when you get into the universe? What I'm trying to communicate to you is that this is a metaphor. That the smoke rises forever and ever is referring to the fact that it will never be forgotten the effects of sin and the punishment on sin. The end result of sin is never going to be lost sight of. You're going to say something, Mr. Leach. This is going a little bit beyond the traditional Adventist interpretation where they say that the effects are forever. Yeah, because this is the smoke. The smoke is going up forever and ever. It's what it says. It's not the same thing as saying that it's not going to be quenched. <laughs> It's a little different than that. Would you repeat that then? What you're saying it does. Yeah, it's saying that forever you, Ms. Jenkins, will realize that sin ends in oblivion. And you will never forget the lessons that were learned in this generation of Earth's history. Yeah, exactly. And to be honest with you, Mr. Leach, I don't even buy that position in a lot of other passages. Isaiah asked the question, who will dwell in the everlasting burnings? And the answer is those that have clean hands and a pure heart. That is, everyone experiences everlasting fire. Some people experience it without harm. They are the righteous and some experience it with harm, and they are the wicked. The wicked are burned up by the everlasting fire. Nothing that talks about the wicked being thrown into everlasting fire says the wicked are everlasting in the everlasting fire. Does that make any sense to what I just said? It's the righteous that are everlasting in the everlasting fire. But there is one. Now, you have a handout that I want you to end up reading at some point in this semester on this issue of forever and ever. It's in your list of handouts. And I bring out there that there's only one passage that is particularly troubling on the issue of forever and ever in the entire Bible. Only one. And let's go there for a minute. It's in Revelation 
chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10. It says, And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and shall be tormented day and night forever and ever. It doesn't say the beast and the false prophet are going to be tormented forever and ever. Um, it, you could insert the word he before the word shall. Who is going to be suffering forever and ever in this passage? It's the devil. Now, what does it say literally? We've talked about that already. Ages and ages. And here's how I understand this verse. That the sin of Joe Blow that is lost will cause him to burn perhaps for just an instant, perhaps for days. You know, we can learn about that in early writings, for example. Everyone suffers according to their deserts or their works. If there are people who in the course of their time on earth earned a suffering that is measured in terms of many days, yet there are some 20 billion people and some at least 50 million angels who are going to be forever lost because of the work of one being, and that is Lucifer. And I can imagine that his suffering could go on so much longer than that of any of the rest that it would be accurate to say that he is suffering for ages and ages. Who defines what an age is? So you don't have to make it into a metaphor. But I'm not certain from some other passages I read that the devil won't be burning quite some time after the New Jerusalem lands on earth. Revelation doesn't clarify how much time is involved in this. And I'm not clarifying it. I'm saying that here is the only passage that speaks about anyone burning for for ages and ages in the entire Bible. This is the only one. And it's talking about the devil and that we have good reason from other passages to expect the devil to burn a whole lot longer than anybody else. Does that make sense to you what I just said? And if you want to read it again where you can read it more slowly, it's in that handout forever and ever. Turn back to Revelation 14. Revelation 14, and we're looking at verse 11. And the spoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day nor night. Uh, The word rest there is a noun, not an adjective, even though we like to read it the other way. And day there is nearly an adverb. 
But anyway, um, what's it saying? What am I saying? Not much. It's valid what Adventists teach, that God's judgments are often related to the crime that they are punishing. So when we get to the seven last plagues, those that worship the sun are scorched by the sun, those that cause God's people to bleed, drink blood, those that propagated darkness suffer under darkness, those that cooperated in deceiving the world are deceived by demons themselves. In short, the plagues are fair. And what is the plague in those who did not acknowledge God's rest day? That's it. They have no rest. It's fair. And it's just another hint at what the issues are about in the end of time. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It does appear by reading verse 12 that some people are going to abandon the faith of Jesus. Do you see that implicitly stated in verse 12? That here are they that keep, then where are those that don't keep? Those who don't worship the beast in his image are going to be those that endure the final test or the final trial. Is this the message of righteousness by faith? Indeed, it is. Righteousness by faith is the message about the relation of the law to the gospel. The message about a faith that works by love. And here it's stated in simple and plain terms that here are the people who keep the commandments and have faith of Jesus or faith in Jesus. Here are the faithful people that keep the commandments. That statement is a summary of the way the gospel works. If you're going to say that the message of 1888 was the message of the third angel, you're going to have to divorce it from doctrines like forensic justification. That isn't here in Revelation 14, verse 12. Ellen White talks about how in 1888 that uh, it was the beginning of the fourth angel, the beginning of the outpouring of the latter rain, and someone, when they heard that, they thought it through. What do you mean it was the beginning of the fourth angel? Are you saying that this was the, was this the third angel's message? And she wrote back, it is, in verity. That's what I'm saying. If you say this is the third angel's message, this is righteous by faith, this doesn't include that funny doctrine. Forensic justification. I mean, what is that? Is that what you're asking? The idea that everyone has been justified at the cross. If anyone hears this in the future and is concerned that I called that a funny doctrine, 
I don't mean it derogatorily, but I do mean it. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from Jesus, excuse me, and I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. Those, Ellen White wrote, who die in the faith of the third angel's message will be resurrected in a special resurrection to see Jesus come again. Yes, and all I want to say next is that you could have gathered that from looking at this passage. Because what happens immediately after the three angels' messages? You're told that those who die from henceforth, that is, from the time of these three angels' messages, um, but which kind of people? The dead which die in the Lord after hearing these three messages from the Lord. So here are the people who die in the faith of these three angels' messages have a particular blessing. Now, don't all people die in the Lord have a blessing? Yes, but here is a particular one. And just as God's judgments are, are measured to the crime, his blessings are measured to the right doing. So what, did, what does God offer to those who are waiting for his coming? and then die before it happens? They get to see his coming. That's the blessing of the thing. Notice that when they die, that what do they do in this verse? That's it. They rest. And if you didn't notice in this verse, the Spirit talks. That's what it says in verse 13, doesn't it? The Spirit saith that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. It sounds like not immediately, but that they have a period of unconsciousness. Verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. So in Daniel, when you see someone like the Son of Man, it is him. And you could say the same here. Jesus returns and sends his angels to gather the wheat and the tares. That's what he said. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him that sat on the cloud, Thrust in thy sickle and reap, for the time is come for thee to reap, for the harvest of the earth, what does it say? Is ripe. This doctrine is important. It is not true that Jesus is going to come to the earth at a specified time, regardless of whether or not his faithful people are ready. It is not so. He's waiting until the harvest of the earth is ripe, until his work is finished. If he has to lay some to sleep, 
so that then he may do that. He's done it in the past. But he is not willing that any should be lost, but that all should come to repentance. That's why. So we count his long suffering as being salvation in Second Peter 3. This idea that ready or not, here I come, if you mean that some faithful people will be caught not quite ready is bogus. Verse 16. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. When you reap a field, what you're reaping is the grain. That's what you're aiming for. And a question of what happens to the tares is addressed next. And another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, which had power over fire, and cried with a loud cry to him that had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in thy sharp sickle. Now let's pay attention to verse 18. Where have we read about this altar before? Why, it was in the fifth angel's, in the fifth seal where souls were saying, crying out for vengeance. Now here comes a message from the altar, and it's from an angel that has power over, over what? Over fire. Over fire. In other words, here comes an angel that has something to say about the execution of the judgment. And the angel who is over the execution of the judgment says it's time to execute Thrust in thy sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. And the angel thrust in his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and cast it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden without the city, and blood came out of the winepress. We talked about this yesterday. The volume of the blood. So when the earth is reaped, in a way, the harvest is ripe when probation closes. And does God do anything for his righteous when probation closes? You know, he has drawn over them a protective shield. He preserves them during the seven last plagues. The wheat and the tares are separated as Christ appears in the clouds. I guess I'm communicating that Revelation 14 shows that there are two harvests at the end of the world, of the righteous and the wicked, but it doesn't really go into the details of the how and the when. You could get the picture here that the righteous go to heaven before the seven last plagues are poured out. But you wouldn't want to get the idea because Revelation 16 clarifies. What time is it now? What? Oh, that's right. Let's turn to Revelation 16, verse 15 for a minute, just for the other side of this two harvests 
idea. Revelation 16 and verse 15. Maybe you should know that right now, the three of those messages are binding people in bundles. Have you ever heard that before? They're binding the wheat in bundles and they're binding the tares in bundles. There is a binding, a reaping process going on right now. Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. I want to preach on this verse. First of all, where does this verse fall in Revelation 16? It is after the first five plagues, in the middle of the sixth plague, and prior to the seventh plague. And what does Jesus say at this point about his coming? About his thief coming? It's yet future. Behold, I come as a thief. Let me ask that question another way. Which happens first? The first five plagues or the thief coming of Jesus? The first five plagues come before the thief coming of Jesus. This is relevant to the rapture theory. The theory that teaches that Jesus comes like a thief, then you have the tribulation, and then he comes in great glory. But doesn't this verse say specifically, Jesus says, after the first five plagues, during the sixth plague, I'm still coming, and when I come, I'm coming how? Like a thief. His thief coming follows the plagues. He says, blessed is he that watcheth. What does it mean to watch? Jesus said, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The best passage I know for that, turn with me there, is Habakkuk chapter 2. Habakkuk chapter 2. And we're looking at verse 1. In the chapter just before this, Habakkuk has dared to challenge God regarding justice. He's asked God, why do you let the wicked prosper? God answered, I'm going to send the Babylonians to punish the wicked. But Habakkuk came back and said, but the Babylonians themselves deserve punishment. When are you really going to resolve this? And you know, talking back to God ought to make you a little fearful. And that's why Habakkuk says what he does in chapter 2, verse 1. I will stand upon my watch and set me upon the tower and will watch to see... What is he watching for first? What he will say to me. What's one thing we should be watching for in the watchtower of our life? That's it. We're watching to see what he's saying. We're paying attention to his communications. We're watching what he's saying. But that's not all. And... What I shall, was it say? Answer when I am reproved. What's the other thing we need to be watching for? We need to watch our spirit. Because when God rebukes us, it's when we're in grave danger of making a big mistake. We need to watch what he says and then watch our own spirits when we're rebuked to make sure that we respond appropriately with humility and repentance. 
turn back to Revelation 16. What I'm trying to do in Habakkuk 2 is, is illustrate for you what it means practically to watch. It's to watch what God says and to watch your heart's response when you are rebuked. Revelation 16, verse 15. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked. The fact that you're clothed with Christ's righteousness is evidence that you're always going to have Christ's righteousness. If you don't keep your garments, you might lose them. Isn't it very clear in verse 15? Lest he walk naked and they see his shame. This is a thing we don't understand too well about the righteousness of Jesus. It's how visible it is to others. Turn with me in your Bibles to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. We're looking at verse 5. Mortify, therefore, or in words, for this reason, put to death your members which are upon the earth, that is, the parts of your body. And then it speaks not of body parts, but of actions, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. But let me start over and, and read these to you differently. Passion for sexual immorality, unclean desires or dirty desires, inordinate affections or desires, evil concupiscence or desires, and disobedient desires for things, otherwise known as covetousness. What I'm saying is that covetousness, affection, concupiscence, and in this context, fornication and uncleanness are all references to our passions and our desires. They're just different words. Concupiscence means desire. Affection means desire or passion. What is it that we're mortifying in this verse? Or what are we putting to death? It is our appetites, our passions, our desires. For which things sake the wrath of God comes on the children of disobedience. Have we just been reading about the wrath of God? Why do the seven last plagues come on men? It's because of their evil desires passions, appetites that they have not that they've been indulging as opposed to mortifying. In the which you also walked sometime when you lived in them. That is, when you were children of disobedience, you were serving your desires. Verse eight, but now you also put off all these anger, wrath, malice, evil speaking, filthy communication out of your mouth. I said evil speaking because many people don't realize that they blaspheme all the time. The Greek word blasphemy just means evil speaking. 
What do you do with these things? You put them off. It sounds like that these are a dirty garment on you. Verse 9, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have, what does it say? Put off the old man with his deeds. Verse 10, And have put, what does it say? Put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. You have a garment you're taking off and a garment you are putting on. Verse 12, Put on, therefore, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. This is the idea about Christ's robe that people don't get. Are bowels on the outside or the inside? You know if they're on the outside, you're dead. Bowels of mercies. When you put on Christ's righteousness, it's a change on the inside, but a change on the inside that is such a change that it can be seen on the outside because you're putting on mercies and kindness and humility and meekness and long-suffering. Those are inside virtues that are very apparent on the outside of the man. Forbearing one another and forgiving one another, if any man has a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity. Verse 16, let the word of God dwell in you richly. What I want to communicate is that when Jesus covers Eugene Pruitt with his righteousness, when he says, Eugene, you are righteous, that his word goes on a mission to make it so. And I am free at that point to put on not just a covering, but bowels of mercies. As the elect of God to put on humility and kindness, there is a robe of righteousness that I am to wear. And some people will dare to approach Jesus without it, having thought that they were perfectly fine with a covering. A cloak is the word Isaiah uses for their false idea. That cover wickedness with a cloak. Jesus never agreed to, to make a whited sepulcher out of me. He agreed to change me. And what did Jesus warn in Revelation sixteen fifteen? Lest they walk naked and they see his shame. Or lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Listen, angels and men can see the shameful life of a man who is not filled with the righteousness of Jesus. Revelation chapter 15 and looking at verse 1. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, the seven angels having the seven last plagues, for in them is filled up the wrath of God. This is an idea. I want you to see it. Something about the wrath of God. We might not even come back here. Turn in your Bibles to Micah. Micah. And we're looking at verse 6. 
we read in Micah yesterday, um, verse 5, about learning the righteousness of God. You remember that? I think it was in this class. Or maybe that was a different class when I talked about that. Micah 6, verse 5. I talked about that in some class yesterday, about knowing the righteousness of the Lord from the story of Balaam. Okay, it was here. I'd like you to look down to verse 8 now. He hath shown thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee? In verse 8, you should know that in the context, it means what does the Lord require of thee um, if you want to be free from your sins? That's what's asked in verse 6 and 7. What am I going to bring him? Thousands of burnt offerings and calves a year old and rivers of oil or give my firstborn child for my transgression and the sin of my soul? What is God requiring if you want to be right with God? Verse 8 says that you do justly. There are just so many today that don't think that's one of the conditions. But it surely is. And that you love mercy. They, the same class seem to forget that Jesus said, if you don't forgive others, neither will your heavenly Father forgive you. As if God has changed his requirements some way. And that you walk humbly with your God. Verse 8 doesn't explain how God justly atones for your sin. We learn that from other passages. But verse 8 explains in very explicit terms what God does require. He requires that you do right, that you love mercy, and that you humbly submit to live according to the way he says. Walk humbly with your God is another way to say faith. But what does it mean to love mercy? What does it mean to love mercy? Look at chapter 7, and we're looking down at verse 18. Micah 7 and verse 18. I want to give you an idea of what it means to love mercy. Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. Didn't we see that in the story of Balaam? How he passed by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage. He retaineth not his anger, what does it say? Forever. Because he, what does it say? Delighteth in mercy. What does that tell us about the seven last plagues? They fill up the wrath of God. He delights in mercy. Does that mean he's never angry? No, but it means he does not retain his anger forever. There is a finite end to God's wrath. Why is there a finite end to to the wrath of an infinite God? Because he delighteth in mercy. What he requires of us is what he does himself, and there should be an end also to our wrath. And our anger. What kind of end has God suggested? In the family, he said, don't let the sun go down upon your wrath. To love mercy is to have a wrath that does not persist. He retaineth not his anger forever. 
is a succinct argument against eternal burning hell. And it helps us understand that even for Lucifer, who suffers for ages and ages, that he will be brought to ashes in the sight of those that look narrowly upon him, as we learn from Ezekiel 28 and gather from Isaiah 14. Let's bow our heads for a closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, I thank you that you delight in mercy. I thank you that your wrath is one that does not endure forever. And that for your remnant that you find a way to pass over their sins. That you pardon iniquity. And I ask that you would help each of us here as we meet your requirements to walk humbly with you, to love mercy, to do justly. I ask for this gift in the name of Jesus. Amen.